Good morning, Highland Park. My name is Brian. It's really good to be with you. We've been studying uh, this incredible book of Revelation, and our goal from the very beginning was to help Revelation feel a little less like a haunted house that you want to avoid because it's too spooky, and feel a little bit more like a welcoming home, a place where you can come and learn and love and find truth, Uh, all of that, because Revelation has so much to offer, and yet so many times we've been a little bit scared away from it. And one of the ways that we're trying to help you is just that during this series, we decided to try this. There's going to be a text number on the screen, and if you have a question during even the middle of the sermon, you can just text that question in, and we're going to come back at the end of the service and try to answer a couple of those. And if we can't get to them today, then we'll try to get to them in a later sermon. And so uh, some of you have appreciated that, and that's been a good time for us to kind of dialogue with you and engage you in this process, because learning should always be a back and forth kind of thing. There's a couple of big themes that we just want to say over and over again as we read this book. Number one, Jesus is powerfully victorious. And number two, we'd better be ready. So that even includes hanging on, enduring suffering, and anything that comes our way. And when we, when we come to Revelation, one of the things that makes it feel a little spooky to us is there's different types of literature that we're not used to, and one of them would be apocalyptic literature. And It was nothing new to first century Christians. They would have been quite familiar with it, but it's a little different to our Western mind. And so when we, when we think about apocalyptic literature, think about imagery and symbolism and visions, not to cover up and veil the truth, but to actually unveil it in a, in a really powerful way, in a deep way. And so that's the text that we're looking at here today is written in that style. The book of Revelation in chapter 1 starts off with this picture of Jesus that's so overwhelming that John, who, who penned the book of Revelation as part of this vision that he was given, is so powerful, this picture of Jesus, that it actually knocks him to the ground. And then chapter 2 and chapter 3 are these seven letters to seven churches with encouragement and warning and, and caution to them. And then chapter 4 and 5, where we were last week, Matt talked about how John hears that he's going to see a lion, but when he turns around, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a slain lamb, but the lamb is not dead. He's very much alive, and what do you do when you see something like this? You worship, and that's exactly what John did. It's exactly what the the crowds of people did, so welcome to chapter 6, and we're not going to just look at chapter 6 today. We're actually going to take kind of a 30,000-foot view of Revelation, and I'm going to put a teacher hat on for a little while, and I want to ask you to stay with me, and here's why. If you miss what we're going to cover the next 10 minutes, you might always be frustrated when you read Revelation. But I want to present a way of reading Revelation that will help give you a track to run on, that when you open it and you read it, you can think, ah, here's what's going on. And we're going to answer two questions today. One is, how can I make sense of Revelation chronologically? And number two is, how can I endure suffering like a saint? And surprisingly, when we get to the end, the answer to the first question helps us answer the second one. So that first question really is, are we even supposed to read Revelation chronologically, like in a timeline? And many people have said yes. In fact, there's a whole bunch of really popular books and movies that have been written and made that would suggest that you read Revelation, start in chapter 1, and it's just a chronological timeline. You just keep on going and you get to the very end. But there's some pretty big problems with that. And... And if you've read through Revelation and tried to make sense of it, you've maybe felt some of these problems. One is that it forgets that we're dealing with apocalyptic literature, this 
this literature that is giving you uh, images and symbolism and telling this story in this different way. It's, apocalyptic literature is not meant to be read in a timeline. The second is that John never claims that this is a timeline. He's not attaching dates, specific dates, and say this is going to happen then, exactly at this time. And the third thing is there are a number of obvious descriptions of the end of the world, judgment, but they keep reoccurring. You would think you would only get one if it was a true timeline, right? But that's not the case in Revelation. And so I want to give you a way to read Revelation that might help it make sense to you a little bit more. And um, let me say this. If you disagree with how I present this next couple minutes, that's okay. Like, we're all still trying to learn, okay? This would not be an essential of the faith. But I do think it's an accurate way to read the Bible and will really bring some light to how we read and interact with Revelation. And one of the principles here is that when God gives us the Bible, the very first people to hear it, most of them would have heard it, not read it, but the very first people to hear it or read it it would have mostly made sense to them. It would not have been some mystery that nobody would have unlocked until the year 2018. It would have made sense to the people even then. That's how God typically writes to people. So I want to teach you this word, and you don't even have to remember it. It's, there's no pop quiz on this, but it's a big word, and it's called recapitulation. All right? Anybody ever heard of that word? It's a weird word, but let me describe it to you by using a bit of modern technology. An overhead projector. Now, high schoolers, do you even know what this is? Oh, they, some of them say yes. Okay, that's good. Now, the overhead projector, you remember how these things work? And so you would turn it on, and it would make this helicopter kind of noise on the inside, and a light would shine from here to here up onto the screen, and you would have the, you know, the transparencies this clear paper, and some of you are teachers, and Mike, did you used to use the overhead? You would write your notes as you were teaching, you know, German class, and uh, uh, imagine that when Revelation was written, that the end of the world was described like on an overhead transparency. It was written out a way that you could see it, and that transparency was put right here. But then, instead of that one being taken off and a new one put on, Another description of how the world will end was written, and it was laid on top of the other overhead transparency. And then John sees another vision that says, oh, this is kind of how the world will end. This is God's final judgment. And he describes it, draws pictures of it, and he takes it and he lays it on top of the previous two. And then he does it again, and he does it again. That's recapitulation. It's this way of teaching truths in repetition. It's not meant to be one long timeline. It's meant to be, here's the story. Here's the story a little bit differently, yet again. Here's the story again. And actually, this isn't new in Scripture. If you've read through Daniel, you know that Daniel had some dreams. Those dream, a couple of those dreams told the same story, but they told them in a different way. If you've read Ezekiel chapter 16 and chapter 23, you'll see that the same kind of thing, same kind of story and illustration told in two slightly different ways. And in many ways, that's the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? When you get to the end of Matthew, Jesus dies, uh, raises again from the dead, and meets with his disciples, great commission, sends to heaven. And then you turn the page to Mark chapter 1, and you're like, oh, well, Jesus is walking around again. Does he come back after 
and he's on, no, you're, it's another story of the same story. It's another account, another perspective where Mark emphasizes different things, different accounts of Jesus, his perspective, different themes. Same thing with Luke, same thing with John, right? Four different accounts, four different eyewitnesses of the same story of Jesus' life. Recapitulation, repetition, that's what we're talking about here. I'm going to have to put this down. I don't know if I can preach with it next to me right here. Um, but if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to uh, chapter 16. I'm sorry, chapter 6 of Revelation. And we're going to pick up there, and then we're going to cover some more ground uh, beyond that. And that will help us get there. But if we read Revelation 1 through 22 as linear, we have all of these problems. And in fact, I would even suggest you end up with some pretty wacky ideas about how the whole end of the world will play out. Man, you can go to a good bookstore and find some of those and read them for yourselves to see what I mean. Uh, but I, I think that most of those leave out this literary device that was very common then and even is somewhat common sometimes now. Okay, a couple things before we start reading that you need to know. First of all, in the Bible, silence often precedes judgment. Imagine in a courtroom and the judge says, this court finds John Doe on charges of first-degree murder. Hear that silence? You're waiting for the judgment, guilty or innocent. And, and you're waiting for that. And in, in the Bible, oftentimes silence comes right before judgment. Also in the Bible, when you hear words like thunder and lightning and earthquakes, what you need to be thinking about is judgment is here. It's actually happening right now. Uh, we see this actually in Judges, in 1 Samuel, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the Minor Prophets. Uh, like Isaiah 29 says, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, windstorm, tempest and flame, a devouring fire. Um, there come uh, peals of thunder and flashes of lightning and earthquakes. That's when you hear those kind of words. You don't need to think literally there's going to be a thunderstorm. You need to think God is coming. Judgment time is here. So that's important that we hear that. Okay. Now, Revelation chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 1. I watched as the Lamb, talking about Jesus. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So in chapter 6, what then happens from chapter 6, 1 through the end of 8, 5 is uh, there's seven seals. Every time a seal is opened, some judgment is unleashed on earth. And sometimes that's a bad thing. Sometimes it's a good thing for the, the righteous and the faithful that they can still survive and be faithful in that. But usually it means judgment is hitting the earth in some way. That, that God is saying, this is the end here. And so here's the rhythm of the seven seals. You have six seals that are opened, and then there's an interlude, this little different story, this different thing that happens here. And then you get to this 30 minutes of silence where it's just hush. And then the seventh seal is opened. And so that's the rhythm of the seven seals of how they are opened. But listen to what the very last verse of this says. That's chapter 8, verse 5. It says, And then peals of thunder, flashes of lightning, and earthquake. What does that mean? Judgment is here. The end of the world as we know it is right now. 
So you would think, if Revelation was a timeline, was all linear, that the next verse would be about the afterlife, hell or the new heaven and new earth or um, you know, heaven, some kind of the, the judgment scene, that, that would be it. Because it says here, it's all ending right here. But that's not what happens in the next verse. Because then we get to uh, chapter 8, verse 6. And chapter 8, verse 6, through chapter 11, verse 19, there's seven trumpets. And every time a trumpet sounds, something is unleashed again on the earth. This judgment where the wicked pay for what they have done. And there's this time of, of suffering that is seen, yet the righteous can still be faithful and hang on to Jesus. But here's the rhythm of the seven trumpets. It sounds real familiar. Six trumpets, interlude. Seventh trumpet. Does that sound familiar? Just like the seals. It's telling the same story, but it's telling it a different way. Here's what's going to happen, that the wicked will be punished and that God is on the throne and he will set things right. And here's what we get at the end of chapter 11 of this section. Verse 18 says, the time for judging the dead has come. Does that sound like the end of the world? Sounds like the end of the world to me. Verse 19, and then there came, here we go, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, an earthquake, same as before. In other words, the end of the world as we know it. God's judgment has come. So we've got two Overhead transparencies stacked on each other at this point. And then chapter 12 through 14 of Revelation is a kind of this separate story, again, in which uh, he uh, sees this vision, and there's this woman who's about to give birth, and there's this dragon. By the way, this is our Easter text, and it's a great Easter text, along with some of the more traditional texts. Don't be afraid. It's not going to all be about the dragon and the woman, but it's a great story of Jesus. Um, but what happens is that the dragon comes up against God's people, and then there's a beast who comes up against and, and defies God and God's people. But at the end, the Son of Man gets out his sickle and swings it and cuts them down. Judgment. God wins. And so we see that whole different imagery of how the world will end kind of from the spiritual perspective. Okay, so now we've seen three stories of the same story. And we get to chapter 15 through 16, and there's seven bowls. And every time a bowl is emptied, again, the wicked pay. And God says, here comes judgment. The righteous can still hang on in faith. But what is the rhythm of the seven bowls? You'll never guess. Six bowls. And then there's just a one-verse little interlude that says, be ready. I'm coming like a thief. Be ready. That's one of the great themes of Revelation. And then... After that quick little interlude, the seventh bowl is emptied with judgment. In verse 15 of chapter 16, it says, or verse 17, it says, the angel poured out the last bowl saying, it is done. Does that sound like the end of the world as we know it? It does to me. In verse 18, and there came flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, and earthquakes. Again, the same kind of language is used again to say it's telling the same story yet it's telling the story again. And then we get to chapter 17 through 20, and there's the destruction of those who are warring against God, the, the people who have professed that they are against God. And it ends in chapter 20, verse 12. It says, I saw the dead, great and small, before the throne. Judgment. It's happening again. And finally, we get to chapter 21 and 22, 
where we find what we expected to see all the way back in chapter 8, if, we were, if this was some kind of a timeline. But now we really do get to the things way so far that we can't even see them here, but they're good things to come. A new heaven and a new earth. And Eden will be restored. In fact, it, Revelation takes us all the way back to the garden, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When mankind sinned, God says, now there was a curse on this earth. And all the way at the end of our Bibles, John writes, the curse was removed. So Eden is restored, but even better. And we are united with God. And there's no more pain and no more suffering and no more of, uh, of all that we suffer uh, in this life. So do you get the rhythm of Revelation? God wins. God wins. God wins. God wins. Hang on. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Don't give up, don't give up, don't give up. Bad things are gonna happen, and they have been happening. So if, if you were God trying to communicate to the first century Christians, and you wanted to describe bad things happening, what kind of imagery would you use? Well, you would probably use some imagery that would remind people of the Roman Empire, because the Roman Empire was brutal. And not only that, Caesars kept claiming to be God, and they kept claiming that their sons were the sons of God. It was an alternate kingdom. And when Jesus came, he said, I'm calling you to a new kingdom. I am the only son of God. I'm calling you out of that kingdom that conquers through military might into this kingdom that conquers with love and forgiveness and truth. And so there's this alternate thing happening here. And there's some imagery as we read through Revelation that would remind people of the Roman Empire. If you also wanted to talk about uh, how can I make the first century Christians think about some really terrible things that might happen and understand that persecution might happen and suffering might happen, I would probably want to talk about Babylon. And sometimes I've heard of like, oh, if you read Revelation, does that mean that the Babylonians are going to have this new empire that springs up on the earth and conquers the earth? Well, I mean, I suppose that could happen, but that's not why John was writing about them. It's because when the first century Christians, when the Jewish people heard Babylon, they were thinking, they drug us off into slavery. They destroyed our homeland. They killed our brothers and sisters and children and parents, and we suffered at the hands of the Babylonians. And so if you just wanted to say a word that made people tremble, Babylon, that was it. Oh, what, what about if you wanted to make people um, afraid of God's judgment and fear him and respect him and turn towards repentance, what kind of imagery also might you use? Well, there's one place you would go. You'd go all the way back to Exodus because everybody knew the story of the plagues. And when we read Revelation, we read things like locusts and frogs and darkness and water being turned to blood. I hope that reminds you, if, you're, if you read your Old Testament, of the 10 plagues now, they aren't always the same, but John uses this imagery, and sometimes I've had people say, what do the locusts mean? Does that, are they like helicopters going through fighting desert storm? That happened. I've had people say, is that what the locusts are of Revelation? They're like modern-day helicopters. I don't think John was talking about modern-day helicopters to the first century Christians. He was using imagery that they would get right then when they heard it, and when they heard locusts, they weren't thinking helicopters. They were actually thinking locusts. <laughs> And all of these locusts that, that ruin the crops 
and they were thinking of the plagues and God's judgment. And when they thought of the plagues, they did not just think about God's judgment, but they also thought even within the plagues was this hope that people would repent and obey because they wanted to honor God with their lives and not rebel against God. And here's the problem with all of that, with the plagues and Babylon and Rome. Sometimes God's people end up right in the middle of it. And here's where this sermon takes a little twist. That once we understand kind of the rhythm of Revelation, and we understand that bad things sometimes come, we realize we might be right in the middle of it. And God says, hang on. Don't you give up now. We, we try to, sometimes people have been trying to chart out all these things. What do these numbers mean and these numbers? And most of the numbers in Revelation are fairly symbolic. There's this number that shows up three and a half years we think, well, when is this three-and-a-half-year you know, thing going to happen? And I'll tell you what the first-century Christian would have heard when they heard three-and-a-half years. They would have heard, uh-oh, something bad's about to happen. You know why? Because they knew it was for three-and-a-half years that Elijah suffered, hit out, after the drought that had been caused. They knew that the Maccabean War, Jewish people trying to re- rebel against the Roman War, or the Roman Empire lasted three and a half years. Jesus' ministry, about three and a half years, oftentimes suffering. Uh, three and a half years, that was the period that Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, February 1967 to August 1970. When they heard three and a half years, they were thinking, uh-oh, something bad's about to happen. God's people may be suffering. Daniel speaks uh, this interesting phrase of suffering. He says, time, times, and a half time. Time, Times and a half time, three and a half years. Throughout the book of Revelation, we see things like there are two witnesses in chapter 11 who preach for 1,260 days. Do the math and you end up with about three and a half years. Revelation 11 says the holy city will be trampled for 42 months. Do the math, about three and a half years. Revelation 13 says an evil beast will blaspheme against God and will make war against God's people for 42 months. Three and a half years. Chapter 12, the woman flees from the dragon for 1,260 days, about three and a half years. It's as if God is just trying to say there's going to be this period of time that is difficult for you. And when Jesus talked about the last days, he wasn't talking about something that had yet to come. He was talking about beginning now until I return. That's the last days. The New Testament talks about last days in the present tense, not the future. And so, my friends, we come to this place where there is suffering. If, if Revelation were written today, probably wouldn't use three and a half years, because unless we study a little bit, we don't quite know what that means. I would guess that the author would say something like, it's going to be like the Twin Towers fall again. That does something for your imagery, doesn't it, to your emotions. So when you see three and a half years, or 42 months, Think Twin Towers, think suffering, think grieving, think all of the shock and the terror that we felt during those times. This is a period in which Satan will war against humanity, God's people especially, and God's people will look to God for refuge in him. We're in the middle of it. In Revelation chapter 13, 9 and 10 echoes Jeremiah 15, and it says this. Listen, this is really important. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. What? I thought God always rescued us. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. 
This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Revelation makes no promises that in this life, everything will be just fine. I mean, the TV preachers, and especially here in Tulsa, we get a heavy dose of this, that if you love God, everything in life will turn out peachy. If that's true, then all believers would still be alive, right? But that's not the promise of the Bible. If we follow God, is it good? Yes. Is it better? Yes. Is it wonderful? Absolutely. Would we trade it for anything? Never. But does that mean that everything will work out fine just as we want it to and that we'll always be comfortable? Moses spent his whole life with a bunch of grumblers and whiners. Samson dies blinded and bound beneath the rubble of the Philistines. David's sons commit rape and even lead a rebellion against him. Jeremiah is thrown into a well, into the mud. John the Baptist is beheaded and his head is given as a trophy. Peter is reportedly crucified upside down. Paul spends most of his life being persecuted on the run, in prison, then being killed. And it hasn't ended. In, 19, uh, in the 1900s, there were more Christians killed for their faith than in all of the previous centuries combined. In, in 1991 alone, I was in high school then, there were an estimated 260,000 people killed for their faith. Like Jose mentioned earlier, one out of every four of your Christians, brothers, and sisters in the world are in an underground church. They can't sing too loud this morning, or they might get heard. They might get killed. They might be thrown in prison. They have to, they have to keep their faith carefully so as to protect the church. One out of four in the world is worshiping God in this way that it may cost them their lives tomorrow. Our elders had the opportunity to just meet and have this time of fellowship with a group of elders from uh, an Eritrean church. Eritrea is a country that uh, borders Ethiopia, and we just had this time of fellowship and visiting with them, and we asked everybody to kind of tell their story. Five out of the six of these guys had all been persecuted for their faith or imprisoned when they were at home in Eritrea. Five out of six. They were sitting right there eating dinner with us. And somehow they ended up as on the run, as refugees, um, hoping to escape with their family. A lot of the world lives like that. Hebrews 11 says, some shut the mouths of lions, some get torn to pieces. God has the power to shut the mouth of any lion in your life, of anything threatening in your life. We believe that with every bit of faith that we have. God can do that, and he does do that often. But sometimes God says, I'm going to let you suffer. And that's where faith comes in. Can you have enough faith to believe that God might let you suffer because he knows it's in your best interest that he knows it might actually draw you to him, that your suffering now might be the best thing ever for you 10 years from now. Or maybe the suffering in your life is going to offer the best opportunity for your child to be with you for eternity. Or maybe the suffering in your life is going to be the best opportunity that you meet someone in the hospital or at the cemetery or at the recovery meeting and you share with somebody about your experience, and it allows somebody else, or their child, or their grandchild, or great-great-great-great-grandchild, somehow someone is going to be introduced to Jesus because of 
you're suffering right now, can you have that kind of faith that believes that God knows what he's doing? That's, what, that's the kind of faith that God is after. For people who say, I trust you, Lord, regardless of what is happening now. You see, when we understand these big rhythms, these themes of revelation, when we look back at every single one, we find something is always the same. Regardless of the story, the way it is told, the imagery that is used, one thing is always the same. God is always on the throne. Nobody else. Oh, the dragon and the beast and Babylon, they would love to have the throne, but they never get it. God sits on the throne. He is in control, and he's a loving and good God. When we were getting ready for this series with a group of people thinking creatively about how we can best communicate it, uh, Unju, uh, E.J. Vu, had said this, and I just wrote it down. She said, you know, this life is a long fight. We complain and we wonder how long that God is good, so we endure. That is our statement of faith, isn't it? God is good, and so we endure, because God has a plan for us, and Not only is God on the throne, not only is he in control, but God is moving in your life, that he cares for you. In the classic book and movie uh, after it, and C.S. Lewis's uh, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, in this land of Narnia, there is one who brings hope, and his name is Aslan. He is the lion, the picture of Jesus who has power and yet love. And for the people who don't know, it's the only hope. And to hear what Aslan is doing, to hear what Jesus is doing, is the one thing that can ultimately give us hope. Isn't there anything we can do to help Thomas? They're taking him to the witch's house. And you know what they say, there's few that go through them gates that come out again. Fish and chips. There's hope, dear. Lots of hope. Oh, yeah, there's a right bit more than hope. Aslam is on the move. Aslan is on the move. And I want you, when you leave here today, to remember that God is on the move in your life. Even if you're in the midst of the three and a half years whatever that might be in your life. If you're up against Babylon and the beast and the dragon, and believe me, the enemy wants to see you fail and to give up faith and to walk away. And God is saying, just hang on a little longer, a little longer, a little longer. Do not give up. You look around at the people around you. You need them to stay strong, don't you? They need you to hang on to be a witness, even in the times of suffering, even if persecution comes your way, that we hang on, we pray for our brothers and sisters, because that's what the church does, because God is on the move. If you would, would you stand? I'm going to pray for us, and if you would like prayer for a season of suffering that you might be in, we'll have some folks up the front who would love to just quietly pray with you here. If you would like to know what it means to give your life to Jesus, then you can come, and again, we would love to visit with you here. You can mark your card, and we'd be glad to study with you later if you would like to do that. We would be glad to meet with you and visit with you. If you want to stop by Connecting Point before you leave, we have folks that would love to to meet you and get to know you. 
But let's pray and give thanks to God. Lord, we thank you that you are on the move. And in the midst of suffering, persecution, and pain, you're moving in every life here. Whether we know it or not, whether we see it or not, you're doing all you can to draw us to you, to draw our friends and loved ones, and to draw the person we haven't even met yet that we're going to meet tomorrow to you. So God, help us. Give us the strength that can only come from you to hang on.